Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 256, or as Anthony Shaw likes to put it, 2 to the 8th, recorded October 27th, 2021. Again, unless you're Anthony, which is probably like a totally different day in the future, because he's in Australia. I'm Michael Kennedy. <laughs> and I'm Brian Akin. And I'm Anthony Shaw. Hello. Hey, hey, hey Anthony. How is the, the 28th? Uh, is the next day going to be good or things are okay? Yeah, it's pretty sunny today. It's nice. Yeah, <laughs> right on. Okay, so the world hangs, that, hangs together for one more day. Fantastic. You've been here before. You've been on Talk Python a bunch of times, friend of the show, all sorts of stuff. So I'm sure many people know you, but you know, just tell people a bit about yourself. You're doing more techie things these days. You're yeah. a little closer to the code, maybe. Yeah, so earlier this year, I um, started working at Microsoft and um, worked with Nina Zakarenko on Python uh, inside Microsoft. And uh, yeah, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is just uh, running around, breaking things, sometimes on purpose. <laughs> um, yeah, just seeing how we can improve our experience and working with VS Code and Azure and a whole bunch of other stuff. So yeah, yeah it's awesome. been a while since um, the last episode was episode 100, I think. Wow, you're hitting the big numbers. So yeah, this uh, two to the eighth is a significant milestone, I think. It is. It's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, awesome. Well, we're happy to have you here. Thanks for being here. Also, something to do with a puppy I've seen on Twitter. Oh yeah, I got a puppy as well. <laughs> uh, like he's not a golden it, something. Uh, he's a, a border co uh, border collie, um, but he's kind of golden colored, and he's yeah. not in the room at the moment. He's he's not allowed in here while I'm recording. I thought I would. Nice be a bit chaotic <laughs> yeah yeah my puppy sometimes is here but it's very bizarre the way that puppies uh socialize around covid instead of us being gone and then we come home she now knows and understands the expressions i make to end a zoom call so she'll sit quietly for an hour and as soon as i say goodbye in zoom she's like we're ready to go let's go it's, it's <laughs> super bizarre but uh yeah that's the world we live uh, so enjoy the new puppy uh brian you want to uh kick us off with our first topic here Lucas Langa, he's, what is he again? The developer in residence? residence yes. For Python. Anyway, he wrote an article called, uh, Where Does All the Effort Go? Look at, looking at Python Core Developer Activity. And I kind of really like this article. Um, he, he not only talks about really what, what's going on with developers and who's doing what. Um, to start off with, he talked about how he got this data. So this is, this is also sort of a, a, a data processing sort of uh, information scraping sort of article. Um, he's looking at uh, the GitHub repository um, data for CPython, of course, and specifically pull request data. So there's a there's a discussion about, he's even using data set, which is nice. Uh, we've covered that on the show. Um, and uh, even lists the SQL queries that he has to, to try to get some of this data. So some of the neat uh, data that he's got, oh, also uh, since Git, it's, the data is from uh, from the time when CPython moved to GitHub. So that's uh, February 10, 2017. Um, and it's, uh, he, he mentions that it's up through October 9th is when he pulled the data. So, uh, But uh, all the information is there, so you could grab it yourself if you want. Even the little scripts he's got for, um, for modifying some of the data. But uh, so some of the interesting things, uh, the uh, top, top parts of uh, C Python that are modified. It's probably not that surprising that C eval.c is involved in uh, 259 merge requests. It's the top top merged file. Um, C eval.c. Yeah, that's where the bytecode processor is. So yeah, that's where all that's the the center point or the tunnel. Everything flows through. So that makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, goes on and looks at um, which contributors uh, merged 
uh, have merged. And this is an interesting thing, um, or had been involved in PRs. Um, and it lists the top, he, he lists the top 50 people, but it includes uh, some bots, which is interesting. <laughs> I was uh, going to ask that. I thought Bedivere is probably going to be up there or Miss Islington. Yeah. They're both so, bots, by the way. <laughs> um, so the, this is a, I'd, I'd actually love to talk to, or, or either me or Michael or somebody talk to one of the or Python people to talk about the different bots that are used and why they're used. And because that's an interesting thing of large projects using bots to help out with yeah, some, of the, some of the work. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, the, the non-bots, um, there's a couple of people that stand out, Victor Stinner and uh, Serhi Storchaka. So I apologize for messing up your name, um, but that's, they're really up there. So that's pretty interesting uh, that they're involved a lot. Um, and then there's a, a description here, um, a nice note that uh, Lucas writes, clearly it pays to be a bot or a release manager since this naturally causes you to make a lot of commits. Uh, Victor and Sarah, he uh, are neither of these things and still generate an amazing activity. Kudos. And also it's not a competition, but it's still interesting to see who makes all these recent changes. Um, by the way, this uh, the, that top PR thing was only since the beginning of January 2020. So taking a look at the more recent stuff. Um, and then, uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting looking at who contributed where, um, I didn't know this, uh, there's an experts index. So, um, uh, that was linked. Oh, it's asleep. Um, an experts index that is part of the Python developers guide. I didn't know this was here. It's a kind of lists parts, some parts of the system, but there's blanks. Um, and so there's, uh, so Lucas, uh, also, or Luke, um, listed did a script and pulled out the top five contributors to each file, which is kind of an amazing list um, of all of the different of, you know, the top five people for every file within CPython. So if uh, this is kind of neat, because if you're going to do a PR or you're working on a, a fix or something and you're a little confused by some of the code, one of these people might be able to help you out. So this is kind of a neat list. Um, so there's a, at the bottom of the, uh, article also he talks about some of the uh, some of the takeaways from this. Uh, don't have this right off the top of my head. Um, merging, how long it takes to merge a PR. So uh, it's hard to draw information from this data because it's all over the map. The uh, standard deviations are pretty large. But um, if a core developer merges their own PR, it takes on average about seven days to get through the process, give or take forty-two days. Um, <laughs> And uh, and then core developer uh, authoring a PR, which is merged by somebody else, takes longer, about 20 days, give or take 78. Um, and then uh, community authors up to 20 days, give or take 80. But I mean, I work on commercial projects that are uh, not really that much faster than this. So um, it's, it's, it's not too bad. Yeah. What do you think of this article? Yeah. Anthony, what do you think of this? You spend a lot mm. of time inside the CPython code. I mean, you did write a book, CPython Internals, which people can check out, right? Yeah, that does. I yeah, did write a book about uh, C Python source code. So it's interesting. I'm first of all, I'm super excited about Lukash being the new developer in residence. I think he's got the right approach, and he's already made um, you know really promising progress. I think in terms of how trying to make the community contribution process a bit slicker. Um, yeah, that that's that at the bottom. Like I, just watching the GitHub repository, core developers working on the repository and making changes and stuff from the outside looks looks fairly seamless um 
my own personal experience has been sometimes it's quite like if your PR gets responded to within the first week, then it probably get merged pretty quickly. And then if it doesn't, then it just kind of ends up in the pile. <laughs> um, and I've had <laughs> well, ones kind of in there for like the three years. Well, right. The average was seven. Plus, but, the, but it could go out at like another 40 days and it's probably like really quick or really far. Well, that, that, yeah, that, me- that metric is how long they take to get merged, which I guess mm. requires that they are merged. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's not that I fault. See. I mean, yeah. th- there's, there's basically just like loads of people contributing stuff and there aren't enough people with enough time to, to sift through it all. And it just makes it really tricky. And the project needs to continue marching forward. And there's people who are dedicated to working on it at the core the core developers but you know some of the community contributions are really valuable i so i think that's what's promising to me is that lukash is kind of looking at that um and not just taking this role on as i'm going to be 100 percent core developer um yeah because yeah i think there's already lots of other people on the team who are uh, making some amazing contributions um you know pablo has been working on the new parser and now he's working on this like um stackless changes in 3.11 yeah there's so many things going on at the moment in in c python so it's really encouraging to see yeah it's super encouraging i think lukash is doing a, a good job sort of smoothing out the edges to just make it easier for everyone to go faster which i think a lot of times in teams you know not specifically here but in general there's these people who are kind of oh that's the person you can ask to make the ci work again when you break it this is the person you asked like to set up a new machine and remembers how to do that and like you don't necessarily get direct credit for doing that work but without them it's just way harder and i feel like he's doing that for cpython behind the scenes yeah the experts index is really helpful if you want to get involved in bug triaging uh so that's something that people are open to help with if you go on bugs.python.org and you want to help to triage bugs um often what you have to do is kind of look at it, make sure that the person who's reported it has filled in all enough information, and then basically add people on the experts index uh, to something called the nosy list, which is like a CC list basically um, on the bug. And then, yeah, it's just kind of directing it to the right people. Once you've done that for a while, then you kind of get given a, like a triage uh, flag in your user. And then if you've been doing that for even longer, then you could be promoted up to a core developer. And there's a few people who've gone through that, that route. Um, over the last couple of years. All right, Anthony, while you're talking, I got two things to share out of the audience. Dimitri Figo. Hey, Dimitri, great to see you here. Dimitri says, thanks for inviting Anthony. He's someone I look up to. Very nice. Oh, thanks, Dimitri. Good to see you. Yeah, and Waylon, uh, who's recently on Talk Python. Hey, Waylon, says, what a great lineup here. Uh, also kind of for you. And also Henry Schreiner. Hey, Henry, also recently on Talk Python. Says uh, both PRs I've been involved with to see Python got in in about a day, I believe, which that's that's pretty amazing. That's pretty good, yeah. That's great. Yeah. So before we move off from this one, Brian, this is a good pick. One thing I just want to point out as well is all these cool stats and these graphs and everything we're seeing here apply to CPython because it's on GitHub, right? Yes. But you can run the same code and run data set from Simon Willison against it, but against a different repo, I would imagine, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so if you run a project, you could probably do a similar analysis for your project. That's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Speaking of good ideas... And it's interesting that Henry is out in the audience because I feel like we might have been um, responsible for this article. <laughs> Clearly, we did not write it. We may have triggered is what I'm saying. Mostly me uh, in, in not the positive way, right? Um, so this is a cool article by Paul Gansel, who was also over on Talk Python talking about uh, the mysteries of date time and stuff. There's all sorts of 
cool things. He maintains the DateUtil package and um, set up tools, projects, and so on. Um, over on episode 271. So he wrote an article said why you shouldn't invoke setup.py directly. And the reason I think I might have somehow had something to do with this is uh, Henry was on talking about CI build wheel and all the proper ways to build packages. I said, oh, you can run setup uh, Python, setup.py space, you know, wheel or bdist or something. And they're like, no, 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 you could, but please don't do that. And then here we have this article like two days later. So I, I don't know if that was part of that conversation, but it's it's a really good article talking about the state of building Python packages. And it says, you know, look, for a long time, setup tools and distu tools, uh, distu tools were the only game in town when it came to creating Python packages, right? So you could do something like invoke Python setup, bdist, sdist, wheel, and so on. Wait, I see. Oh, so Paul is actually in the audience. Real time, fantastic. Hey, Paul. Says, I think I did it because Matthew Fikert asked for it on Twitter and I got sniped. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Okay, good. So I'm just a coincidence. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, so my the reason this is extra interesting to me, and thank you, Paul, for writing it, is I was still doing this, you know, Python setup UI various commands. And I was talking to Henry. He's like, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do it this other way. I'm like, well, he said, well, I'm just, okay, well, how should I do this? So you should use build, the build package. What is this build package you speak of? <laughs> you know, so uh, we've talked about pyproject.toml a bunch of times. We've talked about things like flit and stuff that will use it. Right, this all comes from pep five one seven, and there is a package called build. You can pip install build, and then you do things like Python -m for module run build, and you can say I want an estis, I want a wheel, and, and things like that. And this acts as a front end to things like setup tools uh, to the various backends that do building for Python. Flit, Flit yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, all these different things that understand it. Right, so it says. Uh, all direct invocations, Paul says, all direct invocations of setup.py are effectively deprecated in favor of purpose-built standard-based CLI tools like pip, build, and talks. So this is quite a long article. There's a lot to go through. It has some interesting history. So in the early days, there wasn't even distutils. And then in Python 2, distutils got added, and then setup tools came along. And then there were, there's, you know, while they work, there's still problems. Like, for example, you might have... Uh, dependencies that you have to install to run the setup. But the way you install stuff and figure out what you depend upon is by running the setup. So what do you do? So an example, that would be Cython, right? So for in the, you might have to import Cython and in the invocation of calling setup, you tell it how to Cythonize the PYX files, right? But that's obviously not going to work because you're going to have to have Cython installed, but how do you express that? You know, it's like this chicken and egg problem, right? So um, let me pull up my notes here. Yeah, so basically, one of the big questions was, why am I not seeing deprecation warnings? Let me go down a little further. Yeah, so if I'm not supposed to do this, why isn't screaming from the top of its terminal, stop, 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 why are you doing this, right? So there's a lot of commands that still have indirect uses of the disk utils and, and stuff. Uh, so it's a little tricky to deprecate it. But basically, you should consider it deprecated. You know, at the end of the day, it's better to replace your set of commands with tools like build instead of setup py sdist or bdist wheel or talks and knocks instead of setup py test and other commands backed by projects intended to support that. Yeah, that that sound good to you guys? Uh, wh where were you on this? Uh, Brian, you go. Well, I don't use... have opinions. I mean, I kind of <laughs> indirectly use build, but I, I basically just use flit, so... Um... 
I'm not writing things with C extensions, so pure Python stuff. I just do a flip build or whatever. It works fine. Yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, that's using the pyproject.toml stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anthony? I kind of, if, if I'm starting a project now, then I use pyproject.toml and the project doesn't have a setup.py. There were some reasons why I had to add one um, in the past, but that's mostly fixed now. So I'm either using flit or mm. or something similar like poetry. Um yeah, and I'd, I've worked on projects years and years ago where the setup.py was like just ended up just being a script to run ad hoc commands. Like there was a test setup.py test, and then there's like and lint and <laughs> yeah. And what them, does like, that have to do jobs. with installing software? Right? Why is yeah that nothing? It was just, it was there. just like yeah, it just ended up being an entry point to to do things. Um, no, and one happens to be installed, but there's a bunch of other stuff you might randomly do. Yeah, and no. it's fine that it's being deprecated, but it just, you know, CPython still does that. <laughs> like the setup.py and CPython is still used in that way um, and called and invoked directly um, in the source code this is. So, um, yeah, I, it's good that it'll be deprecated, but I don't think the tooling is quite ready yet. He's not really saying to get rid of setup.py. Just don't use yep. it. Don't run it directly. Yeah, yeah find, yep. find something better. Pip should do that. Pip should do the discovery for you for Pip five seventeen. Yeah. Um. And and run the correct uh steps for you. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So a couple of comments out in the live stream is that while recommending build, it's uh nearly impossible to Google to find it. <laughs> and then Henry says, "I love and hate the name. So authoritative. It's so ungoogleable and a bit hard to use in conversation. But yeah, yeah." For sure. Yes. So I think if you want to take away from this conversation, right at the top, there's a TLDR section that Paul put in. Click on the summary, takes you down to a summary, and you can go to a table and it says, I was about to type this. What should I do instead? I was about to type setup.py sdist. What should you type? Python dash m build, having build installed. Or if I was going to type setup.py bdist wheel, I should type python dash m build dash dash wheel or something like that. Setup.py test. Oh, maybe PyTest or Tox or Knox. We covered Knox recently um, with Prayson, which was really fun, I believe, episode. Setup.py install. No, that's pip install. Python uh, setup.py develop. No, that's pip install dash E. And then <laughs> as well as upload, it goes back to Twine. So yeah, anyway, I've, I think this is the most actionable bit here. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, Anthony, let's, let's talk about uh, keeping an eye on things. Yeah, so I wanted to highlight a project um, which has been in the works for a while, but they've just recently finalized the specification. So this is called OpenTelemetry. It's a um, part of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF, and it's a cross-language uh, event tracing, performance tr tracing, logging, sampling um, framework for applications, in particular for distributed applications. So if you've got an application which is spread across multiple microservices and you want to uh, trace things or monitor performance or whatever across uh, all of the stack. Um, it's, it's, super, it's a super hard problem, right? Maybe you've got a Docker container running this thing, that Docker container calls some other service on a different Docker container, and maybe the logs are even transient. What, what are you going to do to know if something went wrong? Where yeah, exactly. And if yeah. you've got an application that's spread across... Uh, well, if it's built into multiple microservices, then and one of those services has a fault, it's really hard to know where that fault came from. So, like, if it just says error, blah 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 blah, you're like, okay, so what triggered that error? Um, which which request from a user at the front end, or like, how did that error happen in the first place, and how can I fix it? Um, 
and also like identifying, I guess, tracking performance across your application and, and looking at that. So there's been attempts at doing this in the past. Um, open tracing and open census were the two kind of projects uh, beforehand. So this new project, Open Telemetry, is a merger of open tracing and open census. There's engineers from some big companies working on this, um, including Microsoft, but Amazon, Splunk, Google, Elastic, uh, New Relic, and a whole bunch of others as well, um, including actually full-time engineers from some of those companies working on this. Um, so yeah, I've been working with an engineer at Microsoft um, who works full-time on this project. Uh, he works on, actually, there's a few people who work full-time on this, but the person who works full-time just on the Python components to this um, so the Python SDK basically allows you to instrument lots of different frameworks. So you can basically drop it into Flask or Django or um, Starlet. Uh, so if you're using Fast API, and you can sort of instantly get capture of what requests are going into the application, when there's been a crash, like where that exception's gone, all the logging information. Um, you can look at performance records and stuff. I've been sharing some examples of where I've wrapped it around a fast API app. And then I can see like performance of what's the average request time for each of these uh, parts of the application and where is that oh, time spent um, even down you to say, like, like, this is the data layer section and this is the the business logic and here's the yeah, civilization or whatever. Okay. Exactly. So I can kind of see like a, a, almost like a cool stack, but across the actual components of the app. So Here's where it came into fast API. Here's where it went into database. Uh, like here's how long the query took. Here's how long the ORM took to remodel it. Here's how long Ginger took to build the template. Like so, you can kind of see an, a breakdown of all the different components and how things are being pulled together. So there's two parts of Open Telemetry. Well, actually, more than two parts. Um, I am actually really appreciative of, even though there are lots of engineers from big companies, this hasn't been over-engineered. Mm. uh yet <laughs> and i'm really hoping it doesn't uh, is there um, a factory factory method in here uh, yeah exactly especially because it's like so generic um there's a real right a danger of it being just over engineered so if you go on the website and go to registry and then pick python on on the right hand side you'll see the kind of different extensions you can get so instrumentation is basically like this is the thing i want to monitor and it could be like ascii or async uh, postgres for example um, database, Celery, Django, Elasticsearch, Flask, like there's a stack of app stacks that you can just drop it into and it will give you all the tracing information. Um, and then there's these things called exporters, which is basically like once it's got the information, it can send it to somewhere uh, like Datadog or New Relic or um, Azure and AWS, obviously, and Google um, monitoring as well. And um, yeah, actually, I just... Uh, worked on recently if you just want to hack around with it there's an exporter for rich um that just basically prints it on the console so you can see everything that's happening um and it's all, color probably yeah 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 so it's all kind of color coded it's really nice actually nice. I, so yeah I'm, I'm really excited about this i've been mostly trying it with fast api um as there aren't really many frameworks for setting up like decent monitoring and tracing in fast api mm -hmm. applications um, and yeah, I think it's really promising. So I suggest you check it out. And if you see a framework that needs support or something, then, um, you know, this is all open source and they're all accepting contributions as well. And it's fairly straightforward to add, add support. Yeah. It's got Postgres, MySQL, MongoDB, Pyramid, Redis, all sorts of good stuff in here. 
another thing maybe worth um, pointing out here is because this crosses languages, right? There's a Python one, but there's also a .NET one, there's a Swift one, and so on, which means there might be scenarios where I've got, like, say, a mobile app written in Swift, and then I've got the back end written in Python and FastAPI or something, and you want to put those together. Like, because it goes across those languages, theoretically, that's a, a thing that could happen. Absolutely, yeah. And you can pull that all together, and it would give a request a trace ID. Um, so when a request comes into the front end, a trace ID could carry across uh, the different stacks as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. This is neat. Awesome. Thanks for, for covering it. Uh, now, before we move on, Brian, we have a sponsor for this episode. That's cool, Yay. huh? Yay. Yeah. Yay. Thanks to Shortcut. Uh, Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse. So they're a really cool project management tool. And they asked the question, have you ever really been happy with project management? You know, how's no. your, um, how's your uh, Jira or whatever, right? How, how much are you loving it? So, so they basically say most most are either way too simple for growing engineering teams to manage everything or too complex and just throw in the kitchen sink and you don't want to work with it. You've got to constantly tweak it to make it work for you. So Shortcut, who used to be known as Clubhouse, is different. They try to be simple. It's project management built specifically for software teams. It's fast, intuitive, flexible, many other nice positive adjectives. So some of the highlights are team-based workflows, individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows or customize them to match the way they work. Also organizational-wide goals and roadmaps. So these workflows automatically get tied into larger goals and feed into like a, a bigger system outside the team. Good source control, integration, GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, all those types of things. One thing that I really love is the web app has hotkeys. So it's keyboard friendly, just like PyCharm, VS Code, whatever, right? Um, I don't know why more web apps don't have hotkeys. It's not particularly hard, but they do, which is great. Uh, iteration planning, so you can set your priorities and let Shortcut run the schedule. You get nice little burndown charts and so on. So check them out at shortcut.com slash Python Bytes, shortcut.com slash Python Bytes, because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. That does not sound fun. So let them do it. It's their job. Now, um, before we move off to the next topic, Robert Robinson on the audience. Hey, Robert, this open telemetry sounds interesting. Wants to try it out. I, I do as well. I feel like this is the kind of stuff that you just keep putting off integrating into your system. And then once you finally finally do, you're like, oh, look how awesome this is. We can see what's going on. And it's actually, did you know this part was crashing? No, I didn't know that. Nobody looked at the log and it was just eating, eating the exception, right? Yeah, tricky, tricky. All right, Brian, you got the next one. Um, so <laughs> Python's got a few built-ins. Um, not, not a ton, but quite a few. So um, this is a, there's an article call from uh, Tushar Sadwani. Uh, called understanding all of Python through its built-ins, and it's a pretty like uh, he's got a pretty ambitious goal here to to understand everything. Um, but I I actually kind of really enjoyed even the first part of it, so I, I started reading it. Um, I've been uh, especially giving it a shot. I got a shout out to uh, to him. He's been um, fairly involved on Twitter, answering questions and uh, being involved in conversations. So that's a good way to get noticed. Um, but uh, there's a there's there's a starts off talking about scope. So what is built-ins are not just things that Python has built in, but there's also it has a a relevance to the scoping rules. And he called it the LEGB scoping rules. So it's um uh, when Python if you, Python sees a symbol first it looks in the local scope, uh, then the enclosing scope, um, and uh, the global scope, and then the built-in. And built-ins really are just anything that's in the built-in package. So, and uh, that 
actually that discussion, it's a really pretty good discussion and it helped it kind of, it's good for especially newbies to, um, to understand, but even advanced beginners sometimes don't quite understand what's going on here. Yeah. And Brian so and Anthony, you both uh, come from, um, C style languages historically, right? Or at least I've spent a lot of time there, right? Brian, do a lot of C plus plus Anthony. I know you've done some C sharp and stuff. Did the scoping story of Python confuse you and kind of leave you a little uncertain in the beginning? Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. Especially coming from C++ where it's it's very well-defined. Right. And if it's in the curly so. braces, it's alive afterwards, it's gone, right? Like, wait a minute, that's not the story at all. Right, and also you've got so many nested curly braces, it could be anywhere. And it's not really, there's. it seems like, um, actually, we just don't do that too much in Python, but Anthony probably know better than me. If I've gotten like multiple nested uh, name or curly braces we don't have curly braces but multiple nested indentations uh does the scope sort of look in outer and outer and outer ones is that what non-local means uh i non-local there's a non-local keyword um which is like a whole other thing <laughs> <laughs> that's a completely um, yeah. different thing okay uh, for, I, I think i've ever i don't closure, think variable it. capture basically yeah 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 but yeah. The 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 difference in global really freaked me out because really we were pounded into our heads everywhere is to never use global variables. Yes. But global's different. The global namespace is not a global variable. It's more like a module level. Um Yeah, yeah, or like like a, a static variable in a class maybe would be what what other people might call it. Yeah. yeah, it's not a dangerous thing in Python. So yeah, so I didn't mean to derail you that much, but I think it's interesting to think about the built-in scope, the global scope, these different scopes, because it's such a different world from the intuition you get coming from all the C languages. Yeah, um, yeah. also just sort of just really enjoyed looking at the language through the scope of built-ins. It's an interesting take on it. Um, one of the I will pull out a few things that that he he mentions, and one is all the constants. Um, I guess I'd never counted them before, but there's five. There's five constants in Python. Uh, true, false, none, ellipsis, and not implemented. Um, I do like ellipsis. Uh, we talked about that the other day, or I guess uh, one or two weeks ago, using dot, dot, dot instead of yeah. pass. Um, Are you going to start fun. doing that? I've already started doing that. Have you? Yeah. I'm, I'm all about it. I think I'm, I'm up for it as well. Um, I, I don't, I guess I, I don't think I've ever used not implemented or even looked for it, but interesting discussion um also just like i like looking around so here's a section on compile exec and eval it's not an alphabetical listing of everything it's a more grouping them together um it's quite an a, a big article but i would suggest people just like skim through the list because it's got a good table of contents at the top and you can just sort of uh skim through what, what he's talking about and pick a couple and go read about it you'll probably learn something so um anyway a uh, good shout out to Tushar for writing this. Yeah, this looks super handy. Yeah, some of the built-ins are super handy. Um, I often have a Python REPL open just to do uh, things that would otherwise be annoying to do on a calculator, like converting hex to uh, integers and vice versa. There's a hex built-in, which is really helpful, actually, um, for doing yeah. this stuff. Yeah, I use yeah. hex a lot because I'm often uh, uh, looking at um, looking at data elements in a in a uh, a packet or something like that and trying to convert those so yeah very nice nice one before we move on anthony how do you feel about dot 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 <laughs> they should have called it yada 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 um <laughs> yeah i think that would be uh it's way I better use than ellipsis come on yeah i use it for type stubs uh and that's it so yeah um, there's times yeah. we use pass right and i feel like you know what dot 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 kind of says i, I kind of know i'm not ready to put stuff here yet 
I think we should start calling instead of ellipses, we should call it dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. How about we hand out some awards? So okay. The best open source software of 2021. Now, who gets to vote on this? Who gets to say? Well, InfoWorld in this example. So this is according to InfoWorld, but there may be other rules. But I've I found this to be pretty interesting, actually. I heard about it, learned about it because Sebastian Ramirez from Fast API said, Yay, we've been voted one of the best open source projects. So this is called the InfoWorld Bossy 2021 Awards. But what I thought was interesting is going through here, there was 30 different projects that won awards. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, check this out. Yeah. So I wanted to touch on a couple. So there's some things that may or may not be interesting to you, like Svelte, which is a JavaScript front end, like Vue or React. That's not interesting to me. Uh, but Minikube, Minikube is pretty interesting. Uh, Minikube is a way to run like a baby... Kubernetes cluster right on your computer. Just say Minikube start, and guess what? You've got a cool little cluster running. So that might be really helpful for Python people. Uh, let's see, Pixie. Kind of zoom back a little here. Uh, number five is Fast API. You know, um, we're all fans of Fast API. I think it's really awesome that it it won. And worth maybe just giving a quick shout out to what, how they described it as Django and Flask have been leading the Python web frameworks for years. Fast API now deserves to be mentioned in the same breath. I agree. Uh, calls out the main features, which are it's truly modern, truly modern Python web framework written from the ground up using type hinting, async, and high-speed components by default. That's true. And I also really like that they pointed out that while its name indicates it's primarily for APIs, it's also really good at writing more conventional websites with like Jinja templates or even Chameleon templates. So way to go. Anthony, want to add or Brian, want to add anything? Well, I just think that I think I think you're partly to thank for uh, people th considering fast API for not just APIs because you've been beating that drum a little bit as well. Yeah, thanks a bunch. I even created some uh, decorators that make it really easy to like render templates as response values and stuff. Yeah, it's fun. I tried, I tried, uh, yeah, I tried out the chameleon thing, <laughs> the one you wrote actually. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I'm working on this uh, fast API course with you at the moment. Um, yeah, that's going to be fun. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of fast API. I think it's brilliant. Um, and testament to Sebastian, really, because he really kind of builds on something which is quite complicated, but he makes it seem so effortless. Um, and just working yeah. with Fast API, like the documentation is excellent. The framework itself is just is really logical, and um, you know it's really easy to use. The in terms of the, like the I've been keeping an eye on the popularity of the different frameworks and stuff over the last few years. Um, and Django and Flask are kind of neck and neck and have been for a while. Um, and Fast API now is the third third most popular according to the metrics that I've yeah out of seen. nowhere to third third most popular yeah yeah and I know um, JetBrains are doing the new uh, the latest uh, well the PSF developer survey so yeah we'll see kind of what happens in this year's this year's number but I'd imagine Fast API would still be the third um, most popular so yeah it's which is brilliant. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good it's a good solid pick. In terms of writing like full apps with it at the moment, like there's still a lot you have to do for templating. Like you you pretty much have to like build in a whole bunch of other templating stuff. And picking an ORM at the moment isn't isn't easy. But there are some brilliant ones to have a play with. Uh, yeah, there's a couple interesting ones. Give a ones shout that, out to yeah that give um like some are even integrating with Pydantic, which is sort of the natural exchange of fast API. So you want to give a shout out to Tortoise, you say? Mm, yeah, that's my favorite so far. I've been I've used tried out six different ones so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Tortoise, I think, is my favorite at the moment. So 
right on. Well, maybe next year we'll be talking about the award for SQL model, which is built on yeah. top of Pydantic plus SQL Alchemy by Sebastian as well. So who knows? A lot of good ones out there. A lot. Of, it's good to see a lot of the excitement uh, and new ideas coming along there. All right, what else we got? Crystal, don't care. Windows Terminal, I think, is actually pretty interesting. Windows has traditionally been not on par with its terminal experience. And I think, you know, the Windows Terminal, PowerShell 7, oh my posh, all these things come together, nerd fonts, to make it like, quite an amazing place to be, actually. Windows Terminal is an open source project? It didn't yep. start out that way, but now it is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good one. OBS Studio, if you're doing video stuff, that's amazing. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff in here that may apply to people that you can all check out that are, are interesting, but I don't want to cover them. Dask, though. Dask is a big data science one. Um, you know, scale computation, like uh, pandas operations and whatnot, across cores, across clusters, across compute that's larger than the RAM you have by streaming it off disk and all sorts of interesting stuff. I have no idea why my browser is jumping up and down. <laughs> we'll have to ignore that. I'm not in control of it. I'm sorry. It seems like... A <laughs> I, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you why this is happening. I'm I'm looking up and I see I'm not running my VPN, which would block ads. And so there's some kind of ad off off the screen that's just running. And if I turn on my VPN, we'd be good. All right. Blazing SQL is another a great one. Rapids from NVIDIA. And I feel like there's one more I want to give a shout out to. Hugging Face. I don't know anything about that. Now, that was it. So I just going through that list, I thought it called out a lot of neat projects in addition to just fast API. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Any, any of those jump out at you guys either that I've just screened by? Uh, really lots of stop, lots of stacks that I don't use. So yeah, um, same. Yeah, <laughs> there was a bunch of ML stuff though, which I don't use, but I think would be relevant to people who are listening. Maybe. Well, we're not to extras yet, Michael. No, no, I know. I just closed it because the jumping was driving me insane. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, Anthony, you got the last uh, main one, right? All right. Yeah. So I think Lukash is taking up like half of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna get back to Lukash's blog. Um and and evolved the discussion that was started last week on Very this discussion yeah yeah i i'm to put it mildly i'm excited about this i think if if this happens it's probably going to be the biggest thing to happen in c python in the last five years in my opinion and this being the gill removal this be the gill removal but not the galectomy uh, not, not the galectomy not exactly um yeah so uh no gill or let's just go with no gill um yeah. not <laughs> no gill. Uh, so Almost seemingly out of nowhere, um, Sam Gross, um, who works at Facebook, uh, basically like submitted to the core developers this uh, research paper and a working branch of a, a guildless Python. Um, and just quickly recap, I guess, on what that means. Um, this this article is pretty heavy in technical detail, and the stuff that's um, yeah, as stuff that's being discussed in the article, again, is pretty complicated. And I actually didn't understand a lot of it. Um, and I've written a book on the Python compiler. So <laughs> if you read this and it's confusing, don't worry. Um, so the GIL is basically the global interpreter lock. And it exists as a way of making um, Python thread safe when it comes to keeping reference uh, reference counts of specific objects. So if you create a, a Python object, for example, um, there's a counter of how many things are referencing it um, because you don't want to just destroy an object. And then like you're working through a list of objects, for example, but then one of the items in, in the list just disappears, <laughs> has been deallocated or is a point because everything is a pointer in Python, like that pointer just goes nowhere. Um, 
or actually there's a there's a magic pointer that python uses when it deallocates objects um which i know from a very painful experience um so you don't want that to happen and if you've got multiple threads kind of working with the same objects all at once you don't want them to it's incredibly hard to keep track of um what's happening threading is great because you want uh you can have multiple threads working on a uh on a computer and the operating system can do the scheduling of which threads one on which cores and which cpus etc so in theory like it's a way of making your python applications a lot faster if you write them to be multi-threaded but python's basically built in this lock which says okay in the evaluation loop in ceval um don't let anyone else run a instruction whilst this thread is running the instruction yeah with the exception it, it seems of like it's um tasks. yeah yeah and it seems like this is a thing to control threading and really it's just a thing to protect memory management but it has this huge blocking effect for threading right yeah, so it's the thing to basically make the reference counter um, thread safe. Um, yeah. without like, locking, so it's fast. Without locking, yeah. So you don't have to wait to, to add an increment. So to give you an idea, like if you run the GC um, by hand, you'll just see how many tens of thousands of objects are just created at, like all the time in Python applications. Um, so what Sam had put together... I say seemingly out of nowhere, but if you go through the article and what he proposed, he's actually been working on this almost full time for two years, um, which is astonishing. And it's a, it's a real feat of engineering, to be honest. So kind of what he's proposed is a way of removing the gill um, so that there's essentially um, like almost two ways of keeping references into objects. And one of them is specific to the local uh, the local thread. And then there's also another uh, reference count, which is for other threads. So why is that important? Well, let's say, for example, you've got a Python dictionary uh, with values in it, and then you have multiple threads all working on the same dictionary. Like that's that's a complicated problem to solve. Like how do you make sure that the keys, like the references to the keys or the values don't disappear? Um, and it does actually go into detail about how that's been handled. And also... Objects like Python dictionaries are not thread safe at the moment either. So, you know, if you have two threads um, working on a dictionary, adding values, for example, to a dictionary, do you have to lock the hash table? Um, and, and yeah, anyone who's worked with multi-threading in, in low-level languages knows that like the complexities of uh, complexities of doing this. So, what he's proposing is that uh, well, in his prototype, he basically replaced the Python memory allocator. Um, with another one called Mimalik, Mim <laughs> um, which is a sort of thread-safe memory allocator. It's actually a Microsoft project, um, but it, I think it could have been any other thread-safe memory allocator. Um, writing memory allocators is uh, very involved um, for them to be performant and, and efficient. Um and then basically our objects get tied to the thread that created them. And then there's a non-atomic local reference count with the owner thread. And then there's basically a separate mechanism for what would be slower, basically reference counting from other threads. So single threaded performance is equivalent um, with this proposal. But um, when you're, there's still a performance impact of multiple threads working on the same object, which is to be expected. Yeah, but there's always that, a little overhead for that. Yeah, but to give you an idea, like in in his note, he implemented a few like common problems as a multi-threaded um, 
implementation. And he said, if you give it 20 threads, it runs 19.84 times faster um, than it would in just regular C Python. So like yeah. for certain types of problems, this can have uh, enormous impact in performance. Um, but it is really complicated. And that's why I think it's, it's an interesting discussion to see, okay, how do we how do we get from this is a cool idea to this actually being released and being used by, you know, millions of people. And I don't know, Python's like running on like a satellites in space and stuff like, <laughs> how do we go from a fork that someone's yeah. been hacking around with to something that's like production ready? And this is kind of what the article goes into. So like, um, you know, how would this work? Would it be a feature flag? Um which version would we target? And so at the moment it's targeting 3.9 alpha three actually. So it wasn't even the release of, of 3.9. So he needs to do some work to update that to the latest version of 3.9, which is 3.9.7. And then I think the target release, if if the core developers agree to kind of like explore this, um, if that was 3.11, uh, or I don't think anyone wants to touch the Python 4 topic <laughs> um but and it's 11 is like a year away would that is that even possible or would it mo- most likely be a couple years out yeah it seems pretty soon to me and i like uh sub interpreters for example is like an experimental feature i think the issue with this is that it's that the the volume of changes is so broad that it's quite hard to kind of like have it in as a feature toggle so like mm-hmm. sub interpreters was in as like a like a hidden package that you can use and it's experimental Whereas this is like changing everything. Yeah. Well, not everything, yeah. but like it's it's a pretty wide sweeping change and changing the memory allocator is, is a massive change. Um, so question is more, how can we introduce this softly, I think, and have it either as a, a feature flag um, and what would this break? And the main thing is that C extensions haven't really had to worry about thread safety because the gill kind of handles that for them. So C extensions essentially would would need to if they use the mechanisms that are here that's fine but C extensions often have other objects which they haven't used the reference counter for um so they've basically kind of like allocated their own objects and variables and stuff like that that would not be for thread safe and they had just not have had these kind of collision issues in the past um so introducing this would then potentially break some C extensions so yeah. You know, how, how could that be introduced gently? I think what was interesting in the article is there's a mention of NumPy and NumPy has actually done a lot of its own work already on um, basically kind of making it thread safe and, and more scalable. Um, but the, the one of the tricky ones is PyBind11 is called out in here as being a um, anyone who's using PyBind11 potentially might have to make some, do some refactoring t- to support this if if it was supported. Um, and then in closing, um, Lukash, who wrote this review at Post, sort of said, um, you know, the team have been really impressed with Sam's work and invited him to join CPython Project as a core developer. And he's interested in, uh, Lukash is going to mentor him. So I think that's brilliant. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah that's brilliant. Just to come up with this, this over like, even two years is like a really short amount of time for a problem that people have been trying to solve for uh, well over a decade. <laughs> um so yeah very exciting yeah this is great i think we have a record number of core developers in the audience right now yeah (laughs) so some great uh comments from steve dower hey steve 
the big thing needed here is a path forward for native extensions. They could all need rewriting or else importing them could re-enable the gill. That discussion is happening now. It's very early. And Henry Schreiner also has similar comments that they're considering that, but yeah. And uh, Henry also says, uh, we would be up for refactoring PyBind 11 if needed, I believe, is also interesting. Uh-huh. But this this is exciting. There's a lot of stuff coming here. I think another thing in addition to the no-gill is I got the sense that Sam had added several other optimizations that were independently worth adding to Python. Yeah. Um, I One of the things I... I know that the there's there's a lot of uh, tension around whether or not to do 40 um but if it ends up being that you all of the extensions need possibly tweaked then that might be a, the, then it's an API change and I think a uh, uh, a shift to 4 it, it would might be the not right be terrible number. Yeah. yeah well we should just go to python 5 so no one's worried about 4 and we'll skip the whole conversation it'll be fine <laughs> we'll do it <laughs> angular js we'll just like make a big fuss about going from 1 to 2 and then just, just all of a sudden they're on like version ten or something. <laughs> yeah, we'll just just go crazy. Yeah, yeah. Now this is fantastic. I'm actually having Peter Van Rossum and Mark Shannon, I believe, um, on on Monday on Talk Python to talk about like performance in the future and stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk Exciting. about this stuff a little bit. Yeah, so it should be a lot of fun. This was Guido's suggestion when I asked internally if anyone wanted to share anything. This is what he sent over. So okay, fantastic. Yeah, so I'll try to take that up with him again. All right. Well. Brian, does that bring us to our extras? We are at extras. Do you have any right. extras? Yeah, now you go first. Tell us about PyCon. Well, the right? call for proposals is open for US PyCon. I'm pretty excited about that. I already wrote, wrote down like six ideas of things I might want to talk about. Um, so, um, and of course, there's no guarantee. No matter who you are, there's no guarantee that you're going to get in. But it's fun. It's fun to come up with proposals anyway. And uh, it's fun. To, I'm definitely going. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and uh, anybody else going to propose? Anthony, are you going to try to talk there? Yeah, I've been thinking about that, what I'm going to put forward. Um, I want to put together a talk on performance anti-patterns. Um, oh, that'd and be fun. Pr- propose that for, for next year. Yeah. Because of your name? Like ant, anti-patterns? <laughs> <laughs> um, also, We're not uh, on the joke section yet, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, if anybody doesn't know, I wrote a book and then I rewrote it. Um, and it's, I, I, I'm finished with it actually. So it's not out yet, but I'm pretty excited that I'm finished. Uh, the, all the betas, there's beta seven out has all chapters in it. So if you're, if you're waiting for it to be done, it's done, it's not in print form yet. That's going to happen in January or February. So, uh, pretty excited to get that done. I'm hoping for my copy at PyCon, Brian. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure I paid for yeah. the last one as well. I actually, I paid you in cash. So I'm going to give you a copy of my book. I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring at least Maybe bring we can do a swap. swap. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Anthony, I got your book over there. I'm not sure what I can trade it for though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations, Brian. Thanks. Uh, Anthony, you got any extras you want to share? Uh, yeah, I'll be uh, shipping fairly soon. Um, the jet compiler that I've been working called Pigeon. Um, I'll be going version one in two weeks. So it's a, Python, uh, Python 3.10 JIT compiler. It's a you basically just drop it into C Python and turn it on, and then run your code, and it just JIT compiles it in the background. Um, and in some cases, makes it a lot faster, and in other cases, makes no difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, some of the benchmarks I've been doing, um, like uh, float uh, floating point math and um, integer math, like makes a massive difference. So. Um, sure. Yeah, like, 60%. like the scientific side of thing, right? Yeah, 
Um, so stuff that you would otherwise think, oh, I'm going to redo this in Cython or something like um, that. You, you don't have to add all the extra stuff. You just kind of turn it on. And um, yeah, the end body benchmarks now 60% faster um, than standard C Python. Um, That's great. And yeah, some of the other benchmarks I've got are 60% upwards. Um, That's yeah. super cool. So uh, this work with Sam and the no-gill, does that throw a, a spinner in the works or, or spin in the uh, works? Is it, a... it would make my life quite hard for a few weeks <laughs> if it gets <laughs> merged. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, that could be interesting. And I'm also working on another secret project, but I'll share that in a, in a few weeks. Uh, yeah, Pigeon does, uh, there's a comment in the chat, Pigeon does use scikit-build. Um, which uh, yeah, I did want to call that out when we were talking about setup.py earlier because, um, yeah, so Pigeon uses C, is all C++ uh, and it uses CMake, um, uh, which g- generates make files. Um, so, yeah, and it uses scikit-build, which is a CMake extension, I guess, around Python extension modules. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it kind of compiles. It's really cool. Big yeah, fan cool. of scikit-build. Yeah, and I recommended using build earlier, uh, Henry on our episode together mentioned mm. that if you have external non-Python code like C code or Fortran or whatever, then instead of build, scikit build would be a good option to build the binary bits uh, for that. Um, this is the other question I wanted to ask, and Steve Dower beat me to it. He says I he, he states it as a, an assertion. I was going to ask you the question. I bet once Pigeon ships, you'll get people interested in helping add optimizations. Yeah, so it's one thing to JIT compile. It's another to just then straight up run it versus go, oh, we can inline this method. Oh, and I see we can do this. And then like we could actually reuse this field because it's not used below and or early free, all that kind of stuff. Where's the optimization of that look? Uh, yeah, I've got it like on the documentation page as a optimization section and I've kind of written up um, a lot of the optimizations and how they work, uh, assertions that they make and compromises and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, there's, there's some info on there. Um, but yeah, I'd love, love more help on this. The, Learning curve on the project is quite steep, but I'm trying to make it easier. Um, I mean, it is a compiler, so like, yeah, like, <laughs> um, awesome? and I just added ARM support as well. So uh, M1, Apple M1, and you got I tested Linux ARM 64, and in theory Windows ARM, but I don't have uh, access to any machines to test the Windows one. Um, and I could only test need, the Apple one. If you, want, if you uh, need a periodic test, you can reach out. I got a uh, Windows 11 running on ARM. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll take you up on that. Right on. Very cool. All right. Well, I have a couple of throw out there as well. Um, Python Software Foundation P- uh, on Twitter, the PSF announces, we're happy to announce the Python Developer Survey 2021. Take part in it. This is the one that is then hosted and then the data analysis is done by JetBrains, so, but not influenced by JetBrains. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Be sure to get out there and take that. Henry, on the audience, I have something as well. Uh, f- uh, the feature for what you said the other day on Twitter. And I said, after Python's Bytes mention yes, on yesterday's show, I asked for a new feature and it's already uh, in pip, pip, uh, pipx. Pipx run PyPI command line wheels. And it um, basically is just added to PyPI command line. And it'll tell you all sorts of cool stuff like the details of the wheel. So you could run pipx, basically run PyPI-command-line wheels numpy, however you run that. And it'll tell you like for NumPy on Mac OS 10 Universal, does it have a signature? Is there a binary distribution? What versions are updated? Uh, supported? How old is it? How big is it? Same thing for Linux uh, architecture, ARM on Windows, and so on, so on. So you get like just this cool graph using Rich uh, of like tables of tables telling you about 
the status of wheels on different platforms straight out of PyPI, which I thought was cool. Nice. Yeah, so that's pretty good. So Henry, thanks for making that happen. Also on the last episode out in the YouTube, not live comments, we got a message from, I want to make sure I give the attribution, from Bahram and said, um, we talked about, was it? T-Bump. T-Bump, that was it. T-Bump for bumping the version. He said, oh, that's cool. I use bump to version, which is another option to do some similar types of things. Uh, can work with with or without um, source control, all kinds of stuff. So fun one to check out. And um, Brian, you sound really good this this time. Like last time I thought maybe a bee had gotten into your microphone. What was the story of that? Um, it's a long story. Basically, I had to throw a mic. Uh, so I had a bad mic um, and a bad cable. But I have a new XLR cable. It's tough when cable. the two things that mic. are connected together are both broken at the same yeah. time. The buzzing, I think, was definitely my cable. I think there was a feedback thing going on. But you getting the, an uh, SMS? <laughs> um, but the then and then I was examining everything in my in my uh, audio chain and uh, I just got rid of the stuff that wasn't working. So yeah, well, you sound great. New mics even better than before. So like a phoenix, you're back. <laughs> nice image too. Yeah. And then have you got your Mac Pro yet? <laughs> no, I just bought a Mac a couple years ago. I'm not going to buy another one right now. Anthony, are you using I'm one of these to test your own version? No. I don't have a spare four thousand dollars. Yeah, it's, it's not for another spare, another laptop. And also, I was like, I don't really need a laptop because I never leave the house. So, like, <laughs> yeah, that is a big problem. I mean, I am so loving my Mac Mini and my four K monitor that I'm just like, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. All right. Well, that's it for the extras. I think it's time for a joke. Maybe yeah. maybe Robert's got the first one out there. Um, can't complain about Brian. It's all about the hair. You got to see the live stream for that one. But yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, next next Halloween, I want to go as Cousinette, so it's, I got a ways to go. <laughs> Anthony, are you up for doing this joke? Yeah. Yep. I got it on the, uh, it's got it on my screen. Oh, you got it on yeah. yours? Yeah, yeah. I'll do yours. All right. Okay. Okay. So I got it. It's a, it's a picture, so I'll have to describe it. And I couldn't stop laughing at this when I saw it. So this is Frodo explaining to Gollum. Um, and there's Gollum sitting at a computer looking quite confused, uh, looking at a picture of the ring. And it says, buy now one ETH. Uh, and as in Frodo Ethereum, is, right? Yeah, yeah, as in Ethereum. And Frodo is basically um, trying to convince Gollum to buy an NFT of the ring instead of actually having the ring. And <laughs> my underneath, precious, my digital <laughs> precious. <laughs> so underneath it says, so you can't own the precious physically, but you can pay to have your name listed as its owner in an online distributed database. <laughs> <laughs> it's only, what is that, like 400? us dollars 500 australian yeah. something like that i don't know that's that's yeah. a lot for a, a listing i don't i don't own any nfts yet nor have i sold any i don't plan to either i mean i feel like we're, totally much missing, environment. we're missing an opportunity to brand some of our former episodes maybe like i could just take screenshots of brian laughing at different times <laughs> out of the live stream and then like turn it into a stream of nfts that we'll retire upon oh like yeah that. let's let's do that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. Oh, that was a good one. Thanks, Anthony. And thanks for being here as on this big episode 256. Yeah, Brian, I feel like we've you. maybe gone slightly over this. This is not really a Python bite this week. It's more of a Python it's lunch, I think. Sandwich. <laughs> it's <is, it's laughs> Yeah, it's a proper meal, a Python dinner. But it was a good one. We talked about a lot of stuff. And a bunch of great people in the audience gave us like really good inside yeah. information on where things are going. So, yeah, thank so you thanks, everyone. Hello to everyone. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Audience. Yeah. All right. Bye, Bye y'all. Thank you.